Hey, if you're new here, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors. This is my good friend Drew, also mm-hmm. one of the pastors here. Yep. Uh, if you'd like to, you can go over after the service, fill out a card, help us get in touch with you, let you know about what opportunities are here. Um, there's also a gift that they have for you and a story behind that gift. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more importantly, if you are new here, I have some exciting news. Uh, the God of the universe has sent his spirit to speak to you this morning. And this morning, uh, he's going to do so through an old friend of ours. Yep. Uh, used to be a Church on the Rock homer. Uh, he was actually part of our leadership team yeah. on our board. He's right. been up in Wasilla for the last couple of years, but I'll invite him up now. Would you guys welcome Luke Epperson? <laughs> Let me pray for you, and then we'll jump in. God, I thank you so much for Luke and his friendship. Um, I thank you for uh, the gift of teaching that you have placed in him. I pray this morning that we would uh, receive the benefit of that gift uh, by responding with open ears and open hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Man, it's good to be back. Uh, yeah, I got this invitation from Pastor Aaron to come back and, and teach, and I uh, found out that my teaching assignment was to launch into the, a new series on the book of Job. So get to come back to Homer and talk about suffering. <laughs> so I'm feeling really good about it. Going to have a fun day talking about pain and suffering. And uh, speaking of suffering, um, I hear one of the reasons I get to be here is because Skip up and ducked out on us. Where, where is Skip? Is he, are, Skip, are you here? Are you out of... Oh, man. Well, goes from bad to worse. I don't get to say hi to Skip. Uh, it's so good to be back. Uh, it, we've been out of town for about three years, and there's, there's a smell in the air. It's hard to describe, but you walk through Homer and smell it, and it smells like home. And it's so good to be back for just a little bit. But we are going to dive into the book of Job. Uh, suffering and sovereignty. Suffering. You familiar with suffering? Anybody ever suffer? Okay, so I'm talking to a bunch of real humans here because humans suffer for some reason as part of our experience. And sovereignty, suffering and sovereignty, which means it's a big word that lets us know that God is in control of everything, which brings up all sorts of trouble for us, right? We suffer and God is in control. Come on, what the heck? What's going on? God, what are you doing? And Job is the book that describes that for us. And the person Job, the man described in the book of Job, is the guy who voices all of our complaints to God. He's the one who gives voice to the questions we feel when we, when we recognize that I'm going through a hard time, and I also believe that God is in control, and I don't know how to make those two truths line up. So today, we're going to launch into this series. Next week, Pastor Aaron's going to kick it off, look at the, at the philosophy of suffering, like, and actually tackle that question. Why, does bad, why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to bad? He's going to tackle that philosophy. And, and since we've left Homer, he has finished his uh, doctorate in philosophy. So he's the most qualified person I know to, to lead that discussion. The, the week after, Randy Weiser is going to look at the theology of suffering. What is God, who, what does the suffering mean about God? When, when, we're, when we're going through hard times, God is involved somehow, and what does that mean about him? But today, we're going to be looking at the humanity of suffering. What does it look like for us to go through suffering together? Job and suffering. I remember the first time it dawned on me that I was capable of 
causing suffering to another person. And it was at Jim Tut's house up in Wasilla on a lake, and he had this snow machine, and I didn't have a snow machine, so uh, the amazing thing about snow machines is they go really fast. And uh, that, that was fun for me, because I was the fastest I'd gone on a lake, just open snow, you know, and my sister got on the sled behind the, the snow machine. And she didn't want to go super fast, but I knew that once you go fast, you realize that going fast is really fun. So I went fast. And I couldn't hear anything because I just had that thing wide open. Yeah. And um, I see my dad flagging me down. And I'm like, okay, what's going on? Something's not going on. So I look back and my sister is just horrified and weeping. <laughs> she, she did not think it was fun to go that fast. And I realized it was surprising to me that I could inflict that amount of suffering on somebody just by going fast. And um, then my dad inflicted suffering on me. <laughs> and uh, it was a while before I got to ride a snow machine again. Uh, you guys probably already know the story of Job. Job is uh, he's a man in the, in the Old Testament, the book of Job, and he is described as the greatest man in the East. So if you're thinking about the top guy in the entire area, that's Job. And God and all the heavenly hosts are hanging out together, and Satan comes on the scene and says, hey, uh, I've just been walking around. And God says, hey, have you noticed Job? He's an amazing guy. It's like, yeah, but he's only amazing because you protect him. If he took all that stuff away, he would actually curse you. So Joe, uh, God takes the bet and allows Satan to inflict all sorts of horrible things on Job. And it just goes from bad to worse. Job loses all of his kids in freak accidents. They all die on the same day. All of his possessions, his wealth disappears on the same day. A little bit later, he loses his, his health. His wife just tells him, things are so bad. It'd be better if he would just curse God and die. If you can imagine the worst case scenario in your life, that's what he was going through. And he's sitting there in dust and ash, just mourning, overcome with agony physically and agony emotionally from the, the grief of the loss. He's, he's going through agony of losing all of his wealth and all of his status in the entire region. And then his friends show up and try to comfort him, and they're not very good comforts. Basically, they say, you know, good things happen to good th people, bad things happen to bad people. You're clearly a really bad person. How would you like that? You just lost your entire family, and somebody shows up and says, clearly, you're a terrible person. Thanks. Thanks for that. In fact, he says, terrible comforters are you all. All I want is somebody to comfort me, and you're just pointing out all this terrible stuff. Well, then Job and his friends argue back and forth for a while about all these big concepts about who God is, about justice, the nature of justice, the nature of wisdom, the nature of sin, who's sinful, who's not, what is sin, what is wisdom, and they argue back and forth, and they end up with no, no resolution between them, and then another, show, another friend shows up, Elihu shows up at the end, and he is not any more helpful, and then God reveals himself, and God takes Job on this journey through all of his perspective of nature. And in the end, Job has not had any of his questions answered, but God restores a bunch of wealth to him and he ends up having more kids, which we all know could never replace the kids that he lost, but it's some consolation at the end. And he ends up blessed in the end. That's a, 
the story of Job in a nutshell. And uh, what I want to do today is look at the, the humanity. And in order to do that, we got to get into some of those argumentations between Job and his friends. And if you've read the book of Job, it's kind of long. And it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around what those arguments are and what they're, what they're getting at going back and forth. So I'll summarize it here. I think I have a slide for this one. Job says, I thought the righteous weren't supposed to suffer. What's going on? I'm righteous and I'm suffering. Your friend, the friends say, the righteous don't suffer. You must be unrighteous. And Job says, thanks. Your answers are no longer helpful. Have you ever been in a situation where all the old answers you clung to were no longer helpful? You just got in this situation when things didn't make sense. And the things that you held on to, the way you understood God, the way you understood things were supposed to work, just didn't work. You're left with all sorts of questions, all sorts of struggles internally, and you don't even know where to go. And, and some of those questions you want to ask, you know if you ask your friends those questions, those are not safe questions to ask. Like, oh, you should not be asking that question. And the old answers that you've always trusted just don't work anymore. When you go through really tough times, people have easy answers. Things like, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Yeah, I see how bad things are for you, but God has a wonderful plan. Oh, hey, God works all things together for good. Don't worry about it. I know you lost that person you love, but they're in a better place. Don't worry, God is in control. All those, all those answers that are tied so closely to our faith and to our understanding of who God is just seem to lose their value in the face of horrible suffering. And what we find out from the book of Job is that suffering deconstructs the easy answers we've always trusted and leaves us kind of, kind of lost for answers, lost for how to even understand the world. God has a wonderful plan for your life. And Job says in Job 3, 2 through 4, Job said, yeah, he has a wonderful plan. Let the day perish on which I was to be born and the night which said a boy is conceived. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. God has a wonderful plan. Yeah, I have a better plan. How about, how about I just die? Because that seems like better. All the future good I can imagine does not compare to the horrible suffering I'm going through right now. God works all things together for good. Job says, the arrows of the Almighty are within me. God shot me with his arrows. Their poison my spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. If this is God's plan for good, he seems kind of like a jerk. Yeah, you lost your whole family, but they're in a better place. Why is light given to him who suffers and light to the bitter of soul? who long for death, but there is none, and dig for it more than all the hidden treasures. You know why they're in a better place? Because this life has nothing but suffering in it. That's what Job says. Yeah, God's in control. Job says, according to your knowledge, I am indeed not guilty. He's speaking to God. God, you know that I'm not guilty, yet there is no deliverance from your hand. Your hands fashioned and made me altogether, and why would you destroy me? God, you're in control, and look what you're doing. What's going on? Earlier this year, I, I started out trying to tackle down this theological problem that 
I guess, theological nerds try to tackle, tackle down. And I think God launched me into this series of events where that theological question combined with a bunch of things that, uh, these weird random personal attacks, uh, kind of culminated in the situation where I realized that the theology that I had been trusting was no longer sufficient to describe God as he is. And I realized that my frame of understanding God, like the, the window I look through to see him, uh, was much too small. And what he was doing was shattering it so that I could see a, a bigger picture of him. And what that, that shattering of the frame was really difficult because it's everything I'd always known, everything I always trusted, everything I knew about him to be true was based on these things I'd learned. And when those things are undermined, that, that's a really disconcerting place. Because God is different than I've always known him to be. But guess what? He's bigger than we could ever know. So of course he's different than I have ever known him to be. Pain is really uncomfortable. It hurts us, right? But pain sometimes we know is temporary. And the thing that shifts pain into the world of suffering is that suffering confronts us on, a, on the uh, very fundamental level of being. Our being is the way, uh, is de defined by the limits that are upon us. And suffering begins to deconstruct our understanding of our very self. So, uh, uh, for example, as a way of understanding, uh, imagine with me uh, a whale. You guys know whales? Like the big, majestic, water-dwelling mammals. And you see videos of them swimming through the ocean. They're so graceful and huge. But part of the way we understand the way they exist is that they are water-dwelling mammals. And there are some limitations to that, like the top of the water is a limit. So they're not flying mammals. And the, the shores are really clear boundaries and limits on the existence of whales. So uh, if, if that was not a limit for whales, imagine with me a humpback whale walking down Lake Street. That would be a very different type of animal, wouldn't it? <laughs> Here comes the humpback whale. Hey, now when they're in the bay, everybody gathers around. Hey, the whales are in. Come look. Walking down, walking down Pioneer Street. Hey, the whales are in town. Everybody get out of the way. But, but when we understand that the shore as a limitation for the way whales exist, we realize that when whales come up against that limitation, that's when they begin to suffer. Because a whale on the beach is a suffering whale. They're not designed for it. Their body structure can't actually support the, their own weight and they start to crush their organs under their own weight. And they're designed to be cooled by the water so they start to suffer from heat exhaustion and dehydration. See, when you run into the limits of your existence, you begin to suffer. And for us, when we, when we move into the time of suffering, you may actually remember yourself saying things like, I can't do this. I'm not the type of person who can do this. I don't think I can go through, I don't think I can handle this any longer. It's because we're running up into the limits of who we understand ourselves to be. And when we begin to suffer, we realize that, in a sense, a piece of us is dying. We're losing a piece of ourselves. We're pushed past the way we know ourselves to exist, and we're forced into a different type of existence. A friend of mine a couple years ago, lost her young adult son in a snow machine accident. And she was forced from her role 
her way of being as a mother of that son into a new mode of being where she is no longer the mother of that living son. When you go through a divorce, you're forced into a different mode of being. You're, you're pushed past the limitations of what you've known yourself to be. And, and now you're living in this situation where your life is torn apart and you don't even know what are the limitations on my friends? Who were our friends and who get to be my friends now? Maybe your, your spouse provided financially for you and now you're pushed past your limitations and you say, I never had to be the one to take care of the home and provide the income at the same time. I don't know how to do this. It's a different type of being than you've ever experienced. Suffering is literally a deconstruction of who you are in some way and forcing you into a new type of existence. I think that's one of the reasons single parenthood is so difficult is because it's a type of experience that is beyond what one person was designed for. One person wasn't really designed to take care of the weight of that type of existence. So, so when you move from a single person to a married person or somebody in a relationship to a single adult or a single parent, you realize that uh, this would be way easier if I had somebody else to help me. And I don't think I can do this. And when you go through, when you're diagnosed with something like cancer, I wasn't designed to go through this. My body wasn't designed for this. My relationships weren't designed for this. My family wasn't designed for this. We're pushed beyond. And that's what suffering is. Part of us is going away. And we're having to embrace some sort of new way of being. Pain hurts us. But suffering changes us. I am a husband, a father, a follower of Christ, a son, a brother, friend. All, all those things are relationship terms, right? Most of our, our most important senses of identity are relationships. Me and my wife, me and my parents, me and my sister, me and my friends. And when any of those relationships changes, if I lose those, those are really difficult. And one of the most important ways that we understand ourselves is our relationship with God. There are these questions, who am I and who is God? Because our, our faith and spirituality and religion, those are such a core piece of who we are and how we understand the world. Who is God, this creator who made everything? And when our questions, our question about who is God is shaken, that's a question that undermines our whole view of the world. That's a difficult question to ask. Job goes through this too. He says in, in chapter 29, verses 25, starting there, he says, I chose a way for the people around me and sat as chief, and I dwelt as king among the troops, as one who comforted the mourners. But now those younger than I mock me, whose fathers I disdain to put with the dogs of my field. My my whole social identity has changed. I used to be somebody who was really important and respected, and now everybody mocks me. Who am I in this world? His first question when he experienced those losses are, who am I now and who is God? Job 1, 21, he said, right after he experienced his loss, he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Who am I? At the end of the day, I'm just a naked person. That's all I have. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. Who am I? I'm really just nothing. Who is God? He's somebody who gives and somebody who takes away. That's all I know. Who am I and who is, who is God? And those are really the, the core questions that we face too. How could God do this? How could God let this happen in my existence? And I'm, I'm going through such a hard thing. My limits are closing in on me. My life is changing. I'm, I'm changing the way I understand who I am. And who am I and who is God? And we don't often see a way to reconcile those. We don't have answers for them. Well, Job he understands that suffering is going to happen eventually. We understand that suffering will happen. Jesus understands that suffering will happen. He says in John 16, Jesus said, in the world you will have trials. You're hoping to get away from them? Sorry, it's gonna happen. In Genesis 3, God said to, this, this to, the, to Adam, he said, cursed is the ground because of you and in toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. God has wonderful plans for your life. It's to toil away in suffering. <laughs> wow. So if, if suffering is inevitable in one way or another, and suffering kind of destroys our sense of who we are in one way or another, and it destroys the way we understand God in one way or another, how do we, how do we approach suffering in a way that leads to a healthy place and not to a really unhealthy place? When, when you go unhealthy, questioning all those things, seeing your sense of self deconstruct, seeing your sense of God deconstruct, can eventually end up in a total sense of nihilism. It can end up not believing in anything. I don't know if I can believe anything. It can end up in, um, ultimately, suicide. I don't see any point to anything. It can lead to atheism. It can lead down these really dark paths that we don't want to go down. How do we face those questions in a way that does not lead down the dark path but leads us back to God the way Job did? There are three possible responses that I, I see in Job, possible responses to these, this deconstruction. And, and the first one, first response comes from Elihu. And Elihu is the guy who shows up after Job's first three friends show up. And Elihu is, has been listening to all the, the conversation leading up to it. And he's really unhappy because the three friends could not get Job to admit that he was wrong. And Elihu shows up and he says, you know, the real trouble is that, is that Job has been blaming God. Job has been accusing God. In Job 33, 12 through 13, he says, Behold, let me tell you, Job, you are not right in this, for God is greater than man. Why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all his doings? The first response that we could give is, How dare you even question God? All those questions you have? Yeah, don't ask those questions. How dare you? What are you, somebody without faith? And you ever have those questions you feel like you're not allowed to ask? Do you have those right now? Man, that's a, that's a tough place to be. Like, I, I, I have questions about who God is, and I can't ask them. I, I even got to the point where I'm, I look at what God is doing in my life, and I, I said, I think God is good, and I believe God is still good, and if he's good, then 
his goodness is very different than what I always expected it to be. Because this, what he's doing to me right now, does not feel good the way that I always understood goodness. So my question, is God good the way we've always understood? Is good goodness even what we think it is? I didn't even know who to ask that question to. And I'm pretty sure a lot of people would say, How, you're questioning God's goodness? You can't ask that question. Unfortunately, if you don't ask those questions, you're going to end up with unresolved questions in your soul. And eventually, it's going to tear at you. And you have to be able to ask the Lord those questions at some point. Second response that I see is just from, from Job's friends, Job 4, 7, and 8. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent? Or why were the right, upright destroyed? Or where were they destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. They're, they're, just, they're, they're looking at what Job has done, and they've looked at Job's life beforehand, and they haven't seen any unrighteousness because God himself said Job is righteous. But in looking at what has happened, they are implying and concluding that Job must be unrighteous. So they are recommitting to the old answers. When questions come up, just recommit to the old answers and follow the rules better than you did before. Just do it better. Oh, it doesn't look like God is good? That's because you made mistakes. And you better find that hidden sin in your life and get rid of it because if you don't, then you're going to still be reaping all of this hardship. Follow the rules better. They defend the old answers. And in fact, they actually weaponize the old answers against Job. They use the old answers and beat Job up with them. Job 15, 8 and 9. Do you hear the secret counsel of God and limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that we do not? Job 22, 5 through 7. Is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? For you have taken pledges of your brothers without cause and stripped men naked. To the weary you have given no water to drink, and from the hungry you have withheld bread. I never saw you do it, but you're suffering, so that must be true. They took that frame of how they understood God. They're, they're looking at God through it and just took that frame and just started whacking Job with it. This is true. Boom. Kick him while he's down. Because this is right. And we have to recommit and defend what we've always known and always trusted. Defend the old answers. Oh, and then there's Job. There's Job. He says in Job 10, 17 through 18, he tells God, you renew your witnesses against me and increase your anger toward me. Hardship after hardship is with me. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died and no I had seen me. Job 13, 15 through 16. Though God slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. This also will be my salvation. For a godless man may not come before his presence. You know why a godless man cannot come before the presence of God? Because he doesn't have a God. Anybody else 
can go before God because God is there. And what Job does in the middle of all the questions is he takes his questions, he takes his uncertainty, he takes his deconstructed lens, and he plops them down right in before God. He says, you broke this, you're going to have to fix it. Where Elihu says, nope, just, just ignore the fact that it's broken. It's not broken. God knows what he's doing, so don't worry about it. His friends say, no, no try harder. The old way was better. Piece that thing back together and hold it up with duct tape, that, that frame. I know it's broken, but we can't admit it. What Job says is, God, you deal with it. And Job turns toward God in the middle of all of his questions. He recognizes that God is the one who broke apart the frame through which he understood God, and God is going to have to put it together. He says, God is my salvation. I will argue my ways before him. This also will be my salvation. Job says, suffering came from God, and God is the only possible source of salvation. Job runs to God with his brokenness. He runs to God with his destructed worldview. And he runs to him with his loss of self. And God answers Job. Job 38. The Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind. And he said, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man. And I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. I always read these words as God saying, who is this? Who's darkening the door of my counsel? And that's Elihu. That's Elihu's perspective, right? It's like, how dare you question God? And then I hear God say, how dare you question me? But I don't think that's God's tone here. And I don't think so because I've had this very same conversation with my son. He was, argue- he was upset with us because we make all the rules. My wife and I make all the rules in our home. Isn't that so unfair? And my son comes to us and said, you tell us what to do all the time. Why don't I ever get to tell you what to do? It's not fair. So we had a little conversation. And it was, How, who is this? Who? No, it wasn't that. You're my son. Of course I'm going to talk. Hey, 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 buddy. Who, do you know where the electricity for the lights comes from? Do you know where the food comes from? Do you know where the heat comes from? Do you know who buys your clothes? Do you know what I do all day when I go to work and when I come home? And, and we go through all this whole journey of unpacking our world. And, he, and I'm showing him, buddy, it's me. It's me. I provide all this stuff. I do so much more than you can see. And I do it for you. And I enjoy doing it for you. Is it fair? Is it fair that I do all this stuff and I provide all these things and you don't do anything, all you do is play all day? Is that fair? No, it's not fair. Do you want fair? Do you want fairness here? Because if it was fair, then you would probably need to get a job. If you want fair, then you're gonna have to start shoveling the driveway a lot more. And by the end of the conversation, he realized that fairness was not something he wanted in the slightest. Told him, I, th- I think fairness would actually benefit me more than it would you. And, and I, I take this tone with him. It's, it's gentle and it's instructing and it's confrontational and yet it's loving and it's soft. And I think that's the same tone that God is taking here with Job. He says, stand up like a man and we're going to have a conversation. 
I'm gonna ask you some questions. Do you know where the snow comes from? Do you know who takes care of the wild animals? When your flocks, which is entire, it's your entire source of wealth, when your flocks go out into the mountains and they give birth, do you know how that happens? Who watches over the lion and, and the ostrich? Do you know who takes care of that? Yeah, I do. I do all that. Do you want to do that? Do, do you know how all that works? Maybe, would you like to run things for a bit? And Job says, you know what? No, no, I don't. I, sp I spoke what I did not understand. So I'm going to stop talking now. And it's not, it's not the response that Elihu expects where God punishes Job because Job spoke out of line. It's the, the response of a father guiding his son into peace within the chaos. He says, I am in control in a way that is for your benefit that you have no way of wrapping your mind around. If you'd like to change the system, it may not work out that great for you. God, through that whole thing, is reconstructing Job's frame to, to be a bigger picture. It's like um, if you have a picture window in your house looking out at the bay and your favorite chair, you sit there and you can only see so much of the bay through that window. So if you want to see more, you got to tear the window out. And not just tear the window out, but tear the wall out. And if there's something in the way, you actually have to expand your house to get a bigger window. And all of that is a ton of destruction. But when the bigger window is in there, you get a bigger view of the bay and you understand what's happening out there a little bit more. It's not that the old frame told lies about who God was. It just didn't show as much as what's possible. So when God tears down your life through suffering and reconstructs something bigger, it's so that you can have a bigger view of who God actually is. God is reconstructing Job so that he can know him more clearly. Even this whole idea of wisdom. Job's friends are always pointing back to wisdom. Wisdom shows you this formula for life. If you do A plus B, you're going to get the result C. And wisdom is your salvation. Just follow wisdom. And God shows up and he says, you see the ostrich? She's so foolish. She lays her egg in the ground where anything can trample it. But have you seen her run? She is beautiful and glorious. There's, there's foolishness, and yet there's glory. God's creation, he can be glorified in his creation beyond the limits of wisdom. Like, even wisdom is not our salvation. Even wisdom is not the full path to living out a glorifying life to the Lord. Yeah, it's helpful. And yet, we can't reduce it to this formulaic path of wisdom to get to God, because what that does is it just creates this, this solid framework of formulas, and then we usually end up beating people over the head with our solid framework of formulas. You didn't follow the rules. That's why everything's broken. God addresses the whole thing. He reconstructs Job. And he says, in 2 Corinthians 1.5, we see, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. If you're looking for comfort when everything falls apart, when suffering is abundant, there is comfort in abundance in Christ. Not in shoving those questions under the rug and hoping they go away, not in running away from God and recommitting to our old way of knowing, but in going straight to Christ. 
There's, that's where the comfort is. Job 42, one through six. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that I, that I, which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I do not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I will retract and repent in dust and ashes. As the worship team comes up, I want to wrap up with this, this interesting exchange that, that God has with Job. He says, um, he, he, tells, he tells the friends, you have not spoken rightly of me the way Job has. All of those answers, all the right things, all the formulaic answers, don't offend God. Those things were not speaking right of God, he says. Job spoke rightly. And and God, God says in Job 42, my wrath is kindled against you and against your friends. You spoke so incorrectly of me that I'm angry. Job spoke rightly. Now, therefore, take for yourself seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job will pray for you for I will accept him so that I may not do to you according to your folly because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord told them and the Lord accepted them. God alone can reconstruct you in a way that expands you and not in a way that leads to self-annihilation. It feels like our self is being annihilated and maybe part of it is. But in the end, when we run to the Lord, only he can put us back together in a way that leads to expansion and a greater understanding of who he is. And in the end, a greater capacity for helping those around us. Go and pray for your friends. Henry Nguyen, says there is great pain and suffering in the world but the pain hardest to bear is your own once you've taken up that cross you'll be able to see clearly the crosses that others have to bear and you will be able to reveal them reveal to them their own ways to joy peace and freedom pain hurts us but suffering changes us and it changes us into people who can impact those around us and draw them toward a larger understanding of who God is, who can meet people in their suffering and help them reconstruct within the presence of God in a way that uh, allows him to put them back together, in a way that reveals more of who he is, moves them past their old frameworks into ways that God has for them to grow in the future. May we be the people who choose to deconstruct in the presence of God and then take our messy, reconstructed frameworks out to invite others into that, our expanded understanding of who God actually is. And in the process, be people who participate with God in bringing those around us to redemption. Will you stand with us as we worship? to respond as we go into worship. Prayer team ministry members over here.
love the to pray with you. Gabe, of, uh, of the window. It's funny, when you shared that, there was about three people all behind me that I could hear them saying to the person, oh, that was the best. <laughs> Luke, thank you so much for being here. We love you. Go ahead and give him a hand. You know, every single one of us uh, have times in our life where we feel like everything has been deconstructed and yet nothing has been reconstructed. So my challenge is, uh, if that's you, uh, you need to get connected. Reach out to your friends and walk through it with people. One of the primary ways that God extends His grace to you is through the people He's put in your life. And secondly, if you're in a place where you feel like, I am so acutely aware of the goodness of God, ask the Lord, who is it in my life that I get to be an extension of God's grace? Yeah. Thank you so much, Luke. Well, I'm just going to pray for you guys real quick. I'll let you go. Jesus, I thank you for everyone here. I thank you, Jesus, for moving through your word. We thank you for the book of Job. We thank you, Jesus, that you've spoken to us this morning. We thank you for Luke and for his family. I ask that you would bless everyone this morning, Jesus. Amen. Well, guys, we don't officially enter 1230. If you want to help uh, pull the chairs down, um, that would be great. Youth group still going on tonight. And we've got Tuesday night training starting pr pretty soon. Have a great Sunday.